0: everybody welcome back to the body serve i'm jonathan and i'm james it's been a hot minute since we've last recorded and
1: by hot minute probably three weeks ish yeah which in the middle of the tennis season is a long time for us mm-hmm. uh it's just been a busy time in real life yeah i started a new job mm-hmm. i i had worked in my previous job for five years it's a big change started kind of in a whirlwind last week In person, which is also crazy because we've done literally nothing in person in Toronto for the past two years. And I've also been working more than
0: I probably ever have since Toronto last reopened. And today's the first Monday off I've had in a long time, which is the day that we normally record when the season is in full swing because tournaments end on a Sunday. Mm -hmm.
1: And I just got to a point where I had to be like, no mas. Yeah, recapping a tournament three days after the fact, is no fun. When, We've kind of been scooped by everybody.
0: Not not only that, but then another tournament has started, and then you're left wondering, well, do we cover any of that tournament that's already started, or do we wait and put it off? And the net result now is that we have about 72,000 tournaments to cover on this episode.
1: The The outcome is really to just not cover tournaments at all, and just cover vibes. And what vibes are we feeling right <laughs> Bad. now? Bad bad vibes all around oh wow
0: i mean that is a lot of gloom and doom
1: <laughs> there for where we are i think you know what i'm i'm not gonna lie to you i just i just can't lie to the people mm-hmm. i love how you're letting I mean, your look general at,
0: misery and uh i would optimistic just, outlook on
1: life seep into the show now you're
0: not even trying to hide it
1: no i would describe it more as malaise but look at the very first uh, item on our agenda and tell me the vibes aren't bad. Sure. There's always bad vibes in tennis. Always. <laughs> but
0: there's some good stuff too. One, one hopes that the good stuff outweighs the bad. The last time we recorded, the two big stories were Carlos Alcaraz and Iga Swiatek. And lo and behold, we're back. And those two remain
1: squarely in the conversation. They are still the story. They are... Basically the only story on both tours, because they cannot stop winning. Before
0: we get into the tennis, a bit of news seeped into the tennis sphere mid-last week that necessarily bumped this story to the top of the agenda.
1: Yes, last Wednesday the New York Times ran with a story using an anonymous source who was saying that Wimbledon was planning to ban Russian and Belarusian players from playing in this year's tournament. Eventually, not long after during the day they got confirmation, the All England Club itself said, yes, this is in fact the case. Supposedly, under pressure from the Johnson government and perhaps even the royal family Mm -hmm. decided to ban Russian and Belarusian players from playing this
0: year. And this would be the first tennis organization, tennis entity, tennis tournament, to ban individual players from an individual
1: competition. Yes. You may remember from one of our earlier episodes that tennis actually did not ban individual players at all during the South African apartheid regime. South Africa was intermittently banned from Davis Cup, but they never went after individual players. So this is a pretty uh, significant deal. Now, there are some loopholes, right? Like in the late 40s, Players from Germany and Japan were banned, but that's because they were not allowed to play Davis Cup, and based on the rules at the time, were not allowed to play Wimbledon. So it wasn't, you know, technically individual players banned, but it was as a result of a Davis Cup suspension. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, our position hasn't really changed on this. We've talked about it a couple times on the show, and I think we are just as confounded or on the fence as ever as to whether, A, there's any utility in doing this, if it makes any sense, if it's right, if it's justified, you, you're you familiar with all the, the conversation that's going on out there, you the listeners, you know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of folks who have very strong feelings one way or the other and say, this absolutely should not happen. This is amoral, it's reprehensive, it's disgusting. Then there are others who are like, absolutely, this is the right way to go. We are squarely in the middle.
1: Well, I th- you can speak for yourself, I think. Okay. Oh, I I don't agree with it. But I also am very uncomfortable with the absolute moral certainty that's out there uh, on, on any side of this, right? There are a lot of folks who feel strongly, which is obviously your prerogative. But I am not really comfortable taking this hard moral stance on any side of this, A, because I don't no like i just don't get it and b because i don't feel that the russian players are suffering in a profound way when you say like i think it's i personally think it's wrong this decision is wrong but I, i'm not i'm not getting up on a soapbox and screaming about it but what when you say a i don't get it what is it that you don't get well maybe it's not that i don't get it i do understand the reasoning Behind why a Western power would make this decision and deflect from its own historic atrocities. One of the main issues at the heart of this is why are players from Russia being banned when other countries commit horrifying acts? Like what Russia is doing in Ukraine is by no means unprecedented around the world. And Western former colonial powers kind Current of. colonial well, powers. Right. <laughs> Imperial, colonial, whatever. Mm. They set the agenda, right? Like they're allowed to decide what is moral and what is not. Leaders from Western countries don't get taken in front of the international criminal court for war crimes. So it's hypocritical,
0: of Mm -hmm. course.
1: Now, just because something is hypocritical doesn't mean that it's necessarily incorrect. You know, if you were setting a precedent for the future and were holding yourself and your allies responsible, then there's some sort of um, morality to it. But I don't think that's what this is.
0: Like, if this is a a clear moment of breaking from how we've done things in the past to, well, this is how everybody's going to be held accountable in the future, then okay, we can have that conversation. I think everybody is coming from a place of not having been born yesterday. And so mm-hmm. they know how the system works. They know what's what. And... We all know that the same rules don't apply and won't be applied equally going forward. So if you're reacting to this news and coming at it from a place of, well, this is an incredible double standard. Why haven't you taken the same stance in the past? Why don't you currently look at what's going on in Israel and Palestine and the Middle East and take the same approach? I get that.
1: Absolutely. Right? Sally Jenkins wrote something recently, and you know, she's been writing about sports and tennis specifically for many, many years. And she was very firmly in favor of the ban, and was trying to use some uh, political science arguments about how citizens need to be held responsible, at least in some part, for the actions of their government. Because the opposite, like you get into this complete void of accountability, right? And so, I mean, it's kind of an interesting argument, but Nowhere did I feel she really engaged in the hypocrisy of all of it. Like, why, why are these countries the only citizens of the world who are meant to reckon with their country's atrocities?
0: I know I said I was in the middle on this, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to give the impression that I don't have any opinions on it because the one that I do have a really strong opinion on and what leads me to really side-eye this decision and be against it is the Middleton factor. Like, this is <laughs> oh. so entirely and specifically a brand of British fuckery,
1: right? Yes. Like, a British Wimbledon fuckery as well. Mm-hmm. Like, you. It has all the elements, right? Wimbledon breaking off on its own, doing what it wants, which they always do. It has the royal family element, it has the uh, polite society element.
0: That one of the main concerns leading to this ban was that potentially Kate Middleton might have to present a fucking trophy to Daniil Medvedev or Irina Sabalenka or Andrei Rublev. Like, excuse me, go back to worrying about what's going on inside of your own royal house. Go back to figuring out
1: how we're going to actually deal with this Prince Andrew shit. Right. Like, who, first of all, who cares? Why does Kate have to present the trophy at all? Right. Have some minor royal do it or no royal at all. How about that? Like for that to be one of
0: the biggest concerns in this issue of international diplomacy is just mind blasting, but entirely unbrand. It's also incredibly hypocritical. They're
1: taking us for idiots. There's literally a pineapple on top of the Wimbledon trophy. Where do you think that pineapple came from? Like a tourist trip? No, it came um, from colonial conquest. No, 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 no.
0: It's from like the 1300s when the British used to vacation in the Caribbean. (laughs) Yes. And they would bring back pineapples. And that's how they learned. Mm. And then they also vacationed and that's how they're exposed to sugar. And they were like, oh my God, this would go so good with our English breakfast tea. Mm -hmm.
1: Anyway... So the All England Club, in their official statement, said that, quote, it is our responsibility to play our part in the widespread efforts of government, industry, sporting, and creative institutions to limit Russia's global influence through the strongest means possible. So the the argument is very clear. You know, there is a strong argument that Putin uses sport and sporting personalities as this propaganda arm to boost the morale of the Russian people and its profile internationally. And right, that is that's not the logic. That's here. not without
0: historical precedent. Hitler did the same thing. I know people don't want to necessarily make that comparison as like blanketly or evenly, but in this case, that's a specific tool that's uniform of these types of
1: regimes. Right, and we don't have to make a comparison to Hitler to to have this resonate. Right, authoritarian regimes throughout the 20th century did this. Right, even the United specifically States specifically the 36 Olympic Games. Yes,
0: very clear instance of that happening in
1: sport historical terms. Now, you know, the argument is that Russia uses sports to build propaganda about its own greatness. And an argument against this ban is that this will create a lot of fodder for the Russian government to build propaganda to to argue further that they're being iced out or, dare we say, cancelled by the Western powers. Now, personally, I don't put a lot of credence in this argument because authoritarian countries don't need evidence to create propaganda they don't have to rely deeply on reality and facts to build propaganda so i don't think this is like feeding them something that they didn't already have i mean you put a little nugget on facebook or the russian equivalent of and it spreads like
0: wildfire right like these are different days and the thing
1: is like propaganda doesn't have to be true If if your media is extremely controlled, a lot of people will believe
0: it regardless. We've seen in the last 10 years specifically how quickly disinformation can be spread and how easily it can be used to further whatever interest. And so against that backdrop, the idea of Medvedev or Sabalenka being used in the same way that uh, Max Schmeling would have been in nineteen thirty six. It's kind of diluted for me personally.
1: Yeah, so I don't necessarily buy that argument that that Wimbledon is like giving them propaganda fodder because they don't need it to create propaganda. You know, like they don't need fuel. Mm-hmm. It's already being created. Right, and so where this
0: decision becomes a problem for me is because we clearly we can see it. The Conservative British government hovering over this decision and using it as their own political fodder. Taking that into account, you're then you can then look at it and think, well, well, these poor Russian players, innocent Russian players who've talked about being against war, they're now caught up in it. It's not fair to them. But like you said, and like Daria Kasatkin has said. You know, there are greater things going on in the world right now. There's bigger suffering going on in the world right now. A Russian player not being able to play Wimbledon is not the end of the world.
1: Mm -hmm. That's the
0: perspective that I'm keeping it in.
1: And like you can say that in the same breath as saying it's unfair. It maybe doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But is it the hill that everybody should die on? Only if you want to, of course. Mm. But for me, no. Right. And so this is where the
0: disconnect... I know you kind of wanted to distance yourself from me earlier when I said (laughs) we are in the middle. But this is where our disconnect is because we, operating in a sea of gray, can't find ourselves to either extreme
1: at all. We can't find a path. There's no path. Uh, The institutions of tennis, the ATP and the WTA, are not happy about it. Mm -hmm. Both organizations have come out the ATP said that discrimination based on nationality constitutes a violation of our agreement with Wimbledon, and it could lead to a, quote, damaging precedent. So there's, you know, there's some chess being played here. There's some light uh, kind of threats on the part of the ATP. And, you know, we have to wonder, like, we know that there are discussions going on behind the scenes. Are they considering a boycott? Are they considering some Strongly worded letter. You know, it is the they, ATB going to take action.
0: Allegedly there are discussions whereby both tours, or maybe one, could take the decision that they will not allot or award ranking points for Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. In effect, that would make it a glorified, super lucrative exhibition for
1: prestige right. and clout. Mm-hmm you would, of course, still be a Wimbledon champion. Mm -hmm. You just wouldn't get those 2,000 points. This is the time, right? If the ATP wants to reassert its position that it is a player's voice, that it was founded as a player's association, and that players have equal voice to tournaments, this would be a time to exert that. Even if I believe that's a fallacy, it would be a time to sort of step up and say, we're going to fight for our players
0: it would also be the time for the PTPA to take a firm stance in support of its players to be leading the way on this instead of releasing statements that don't really say anything and also refer to Ukraine as,
1: quote, the Ukraine. Yeah, it was such a weird statement And, you know, the PTPA, like the ATP, has to represent players from a lot of different countries, including the countries, you know, at play in this conflict. And so I don't know what the correct answer is for the PTPA. I am surprised, based on their leadership, that they weren't more firm in decrying the ban of Russian and Belarusian players. I'm very surprised.
0: You have here noted, uh, quoting Djokovic, that he said, When politics interferes with sport, it usually doesn't turn out well. (laughs) Turn out well for whom? One. And also,
1: what specifically are we talking about here? And also, when do politics not intersect with sport? You know, obviously he's, this is self-interested, right? When politics that disagree with his politics intersect with his ability to play the sport, it doesn't turn out well.
0: Something There was something that happened early in the year.
1: I can't quite remember
0: with um, Djokovic oh, that Lord. could be applied mm-hmm. to that I, I line can't of recall. thinking. Uh,
1: anyway, Djokovic was clear that he disagreed with Wimbledon's decision, but the PTPA's official statement was not or didn't really fall on either side. Andrei Rublev spoke at length about how they had a call with Wimbledon officials, the Russian players, And that they even offered to donate their prize money to humanitarian causes if they were allowed to play. I don't know. It doesn't really sound like they got very far in this call.
0: And here's where I give credit to Rublev. Because if the parties involved, mainly, the All England Club and the British government, were truly concerned with providing material aid using this tournament for good to A, denounce the Russian war in Ukraine and B, help the Ukrainian people, this is a material way to do it because then you would have Russian players contributing to an anti-Russian war effort. The political machinations that came or resulted in this ban are kind of toothless
1: when you compare it to what it could be with what Rublev is suggesting. Right. But the thing is, this this is not going to happen, right? Because part of the reason, supposedly, they say part of the reason for this ban is that applying a purity test to the players is not feasible. And it's extremely risky for those players. So they're not going to ask players to sign some sort of anti-war document and get their feelings on the war on the record. Instead, they're just not going to let them play at all. So wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't a player donating his or her prize money to uh, humanitarian aid in Ukraine, wouldn't that expose them to similar risk if they were Russian? The point is, like, that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like Wimbledon would ever do that, whether or not it's right. Mm -hmm.
0: Agreed. What this is showing me is that this was a a one-sided decision.
1: Oh, yeah. No, No, there was no consultation. Like... Uh, They weren't meeting for players to get their opinion and then like vote on it. There's a distinction that folks have been making while decrying this ban.
0: They've been saying, well, yeah, obviously it makes sense for team sports to ban a Russian team from competing, but these are individual players. And for me in tennis, where that kind of breaks down is the fact that tennis players, every single match they play, they have their flag beside it, beside their name. And we've talked about on the show, why is that the case? Why is tennis so jingoistic? Why is it so nationalistic? Why, if it's an in- individual sport, why do we always have to see the flag? Why are we always referring to, oh, the Spaniard, Rafael Nadal, blah, 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 the American, the this, the that. Well, now, this this complicates things. right? Mm. We can't pretend like that doesn't happen, that these players don't exist in the public's eye, in the world's eye as a Russian tennis player, as an American tennis player. Like this is partly tennis is doing. Yeah. This is the history of tennis. And so that distinction doesn't it doesn't hold water with me. Like okay, you ban them from some meaningless, toothless event in Davis Cup. Big big whoop. It's not like banning them from the mm-hmm. World Cup. You know, it's not the same thing. If you're going to pretend like you see utility in banning them from team tennis events, then I don't see how you can turn a blind eye to the fact that there's still some nationalistic tethering to their individual play. So again, I don't have an opinion strongly one way or the other. And we saw how this initially played out when Russia first invaded Ukraine and how the tours were scrambling to decide how to deal with it. And they eventually settled on just removing the flag beside a
1: player's name. So as usual, Wimbledon does whatever the hell they want, and everybody else had to scramble for a response. That was your blanket, we need to move on. Yes. Statement. Yes. (laughs) On the same day, Pam Shriver appeared on the Tennis Podcast and published an essay in The Telegraph uh, talking about an inappropriate relationship with her coach that she had never disclosed publicly before. This happened in the early 80s when Pam was between the ages of like 17 and 20, early 20s. Uh, She talked about how she had been paired with this Australian coach when she was a kid. And they worked together for many years. She developed feelings for him as basically as a kid. And their relationship turned inappropriate and then sexual in her early 20s. And, you know, she said that she's been keeping this to herself for many years and uh, has taken a long time to unpack it and and kind of understand how inappropriate it was. And I imagine she's had to deal with so much shame around it and has to unpack all of that before she can share it with the world. Uh, It was, you know, it was a really affecting interview. It's a pretty difficult listen, but I think she's done a service to people in tennis. She's talked about how these types of relationships were a lot more common than you'd like to think that still it, are. Yeah, that inappropriate and abusive relationships exist on the tennis tours both tours today. And by going public, Pam may have may have changed the world for somebody. What struck me
0: in addition to everything that you said was that Pam lived this in her own life. And then by continuing to be involved in tennis as a commentator and being on tour the last few decades, she then had a front row seat to be able to identify it happening time and time and time again on the WTA tour specifically. Mm-hmm. I just don't know
1: what that must have been like. And in her case, and I don't want to tell her story, I want you know her words to, to live out there on their own, but in her case... She was in her late teens and then early 20s. Her coach was 30 years older than her, was married, was uh, in a position of authority, and we always we already know that that relationship between a coach and a player, especially an older male coach and a younger female player, is fraught. Uh, and it's complicated, even even in the best of circumstances. And think about the lack of vocabulary people had in 1980 compared to what they have now and the lack of infrastructure when you say
0: vocabulary meaning the ability to describe what's happening or understand what's happening,
1: right because you know she wasn't a minor would would people even think to call it abusive and that's her prerogative of course to name it right but back when it was happening how many of her fellow players would have seen it and thought well yeah i've seen it before She talked about just the lack of a support structure. She didn't know who to talk to. She felt shame around it. Hopefully, there is a lot more support available to players now. Mm -hmm. But her bravery in talking about this, I really think, you know, it can change something profound for even one person. Because it has not stopped being an issue.
0: Right. Even to this day. We're going to move on to some of the actual tennis happenings. Right but now. first. But first. What? What? You're. I'm getting there. I'm setting up something here. Oh, sorry. We live. You
1: think after <laughs> how many years of doing this, we would know each other's rhythms by right now?
0: <sighs> we live off a major street in Toronto, and we also happen to live directly opposite a handful of auto shops. So, as you can imagine, recording can be a bit tricky when it comes to extraneous. Noises that just pop up, be it helicopters, ambulances, fire trucks. Trains. Now there's uh, an idle motorcycle. So if that comes through on the recording, it it just has to be the case.
1: But you know what? It has been the saving grace of working at home and being stuck at home is that I can look out the window and see like what kind of drama is going on outside. I feel like my grandfather.
0: You mean like one of those young... 19 year old tiktokers just standing up beside a dumpster
1: taking pictures that was funny uh this morning i actually i haven't told you this yet this morning a woman was having like a screaming match with a parking authority person she was like she whipped around this big suv i can't believe he didn't call the actual cops on her and she was like doing top karen on the parking guy. And he could not be bothered. Because you know when that thing is printed, it's done and dusted. Okay, mm-hmm. that, that toothpaste is not going back in the tube. I'm all for protecting workers who are just doing their job. But I struggle <laughs> with the parking well, guy. Well, they're not cops here, right? No. So I can I can support that.
0: Like, okay, they were maybe there for one or two minutes too long. Like...
1: No, it she deserved... I
0: could tell she deserved it. No, I'm, I'm sure. I don't doubt that, but I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> I mean, the ticket is only like $30, and the gas to fill up her SUV probably costs like $200. A lot of these signs are indecipherable as well. Anyway, we are a tennis podcast, so we will move on. Yeah, there was a big old furor
0: uh, when, when the wild cards for the Madrid tournament
1: was announced. You know what? In all my years on Earth, I think... I don't think I have another wildcard fight in me. I man, just don't. And There have been many years. Indeed. And <laughs> many fights over wildcards. I thought you were going to say "And many more for you. Oh. You missed your opportunity yeah, there. Whatever. But Fernando Verdasco was really pissed about the decisions made about who received main draw wildcards for the Madrid tournament. It's the first Madrid tournament under IMG ownership. Mm -hmm. Previously, uh, I mean, I don't recall him complaining about wildcards for Romanian players when Tyriac was the owner. Correct me if I'm wrong. But he was pretty pissed that there were not more local Spanish players getting main draw wildcards. And I cannot be bothered to care about wildcards anymore. I really just can't. Andy Murray decided to get involved, which... Was a questionable decision. Yeah, that was quite quite the choice when mm-hmm. he has been just eating them up lately in the last <laughs> and, 12 months. Right, and like, obviously, tournaments are going to give him wildcards. He's a big star. He's going to sell tickets. He's like one of the few wildcard recipients who will probably actually sell tickets, right? He gave the impression
0: and, that he just wakes up any given day and there are wildcard offers in his email. Bro- he was like, uh, yeah, I'd be fine with playing... ITF tournaments and challengers and all this stuff, and, but like,
1: y'all keep giving me wildcards. What am I going to say? Like, ner? And you know what? I agree with Andy quite a lot on this podcast, but my response to that is, well, do it. He said, I'll, I would gladly play qualies. Then do it, babe. Give your wild card to somebody else.
0: Right, when you said explicitly you weren't going to be playing the clay season. And then lo and behold, Ooh. here she comes. <laughs> Look what I got in the mailbox today. <laughs> It just popped up like a body surf postcard.
1: <laughs> Made his day. Mm. So the the conversation about this is always, always, always that wildcards are unfair, but how do we make them less unfair? And I simply don't have the energy for it. Because should Spanish players be giving, given priority in wildcards because the tournament happens to take place in Spain? Is it fair for countries that don't have a Masters tournament? Obviously not.
0: Should it be given to Grand Slam champions? Should it be given to young up-and-coming talent? Should it be given to players who may have maybe three more tour
1: wins in their future like Verdesco? I don't know. I mean, to be fair, he wasn't even arguing that he should have gotten a wild card. Just that Spanish players should have.
0: You do not take that load of a stance without some self-interest being present. Fair enough. Please let that be the last time that we're interrupted with this recording. (laughs) We just took the the greek lemon potatoes out of the oven i uh and they c- need a lot of start and
1: stop and uh, toss it around and da, da da yeah
0: being my first monday off in a while i took the took the opportunity to cook up a storm today i made stew peas and rice i made Akian sawfish i made curry chicken and
1: those greek lemon potatoes that you love so much Yes, and there was a casualty dish that will not be served. I actually, I didn't even try it. You weren't even going to try it to begin with. Probably not. I was making a veggie curry and it was
0: atrocious. It was one of my biggest culinary fails in my life. It was just terrible. It happens. Welcome to the club.
1: The curry chicken was amazing though. I've made dishes that I tasted once and immediately threw away. Like... (laughs) A little dramatic, but anyway. I mean, we're uh, bringing different levels of skill to the okay. table here. Wow. Wow. So it's
0: a bit more of a disappointment mm, for me. Yeah.
1: You know, there's a McDonald's right down the street. Um, so I said I wasn't really going to engage on this wildcard thing. But one thing I do want to say is that this is an obvious problem when ownership is too heavily concentrated. IMG owns a bunch of tournaments. IMG will award wildcards however it pleases. This is, a, to me, pretty good argument against heavily concentrated ownership in anything, but in tennis specifically.
0: And especially when it's owned by an agency that reps players. Like, they're gonna give them to their
1: own players. Yeah. Now on to the tennis. We are fully in the European clay swing. We have been paying attention. We just haven't been talking to you guys mm-hmm.
0: The order here is a little bit skewed, because the agenda has been building for a while Oh now. yeah,
1: sorry. Do you want to... So...
0: Let's do most recent. Okay. Because so we last gotta... we were here, we did Miami, where Alcaraz and Sveantek won. And so let's start with this past week, where Carlos won in Barcelona, and Iga won in
1: Stuttgart. Alright. Barcelona, the venerated... 500 level tournament that Rafa has won a ton of times this is a clay season that started without Rafa mostly without Dominic Novak isn't in Barcelona and it's given a lot of different players a chance to shine Dimitrov has had kind of this mini clay renaissance Uh, a mild one a memorable. mini one at in the previous week, which we'll talk about in Monte Carlo. A semi and then a round of sixteen. Mm-hmm. It's not like Lazarus here, uh, but still, okay. It's kind of a big deal. Pablo Carreño Busta reaching the final in Barcelona. Alex Di Minaur, who I always forget about, and then he shows up with a great result. And then you're disgusted all over again by the official here. <laughs> uh, Diego Schwartzman playing well. Casper Ruud surprisingly not flourishing. On his favorite surface yet, he's so a there, he's a hard court specialist now. Uh, I know. So you know there are stories going on, but aside from Alcaraz, there does still feel like there's a noticeable lack of major star power, and and for the the next few years, Carlos may be the star. But like we don't know, mm-hmm. but uh, you know it's a it's a really unusual start to the clay swing for the ATP. Mostly because Rafa is MIA. Let's be
0: honest. Yeah, we wouldn't be concerned about who's making quarters or semis or not if Rafa were still there, because he would be right. dominating those
1: headlines. And you know, and Dominic has been so uh, such a, a stalwart on clay since probably twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen that him coming back from injury and not being at his his level best yet, you know, there there's a hole here. Sitsupas is you know, coming back to his best now that Clay has come back. But let's talk about Barcelona. It rained so much that the semis and the finals were played on the same day. Carlos beats Alex Diebenauer in three sets on Sunday and then just sweeps PCB in two sets in the final.
0: There were multiple days in this tournament where players were asked to play multiple matches. That's not a good scene. That's not good for anybody involved. And to think folks were like, oh my God, can Rafa make it back for Barcelona? Can, can you imagine if Rafa, coming back from <laughs> this injury, this. had to deal with this rain shit in Barcelona?
1: Like, <laughs> right. We have actually been to Barcelona in May, mm-hmm. and it was quite chilly that year. And this is even earlier than we yeah. were there. yeah.
0: Because we were there the first week of May. No, everybody was suited up, like, bundled for the gods <laughs> at that tournament. Like, mm-hmm. long sleeves, sweaters, hoodies. It was... It was less than ideal playing conditions.
1: Yeah. So Carlos and his drop shots win the Barcelona title, his twenty third win on the ATP tour this year, and he makes his top ten debut at if I if I hear eighteen years eleven months one more time, I swear to God.
0: <laughs> his twenty third win on the year, incidentally,
1: Igor Swiatek has won twenty three matches in a row. <laughs> right. So they they've been taking uh, similar paths. But Iga already has 32 wins on the year, which actually is pretty close to her winning a season ever. And it's only the end of April. She she hasn't had many seasons. She hasn't, but uh, it shows you how unprecedented this run is for Iga. Carlos came
0: very close to losing in that semifinal. Did you see that screen grab that was going around Mm -hmm. that said Carlos Alcaraz won this match from this position? He was a set down and Diminar was serving for the match at 40-15. He had just gotten to the net, hit his forehand approach shot. The ball had just left his racket and Carlos was a ways away. (laughs) And the point being, like, you would think that that's a point that Diminar would win based on this still. And that was not the case. Mm. It was actually quite fortuitous, I would say, (laughs) that he won that specific point. You can't get on these runs and have this great stretch of results without having luck come into play at some point. Right, And
1: right. that's where people say you create your own good luck when you're in these kinds of purple patches. There was some drama in the quarterfinal versus Tsitsipas. Uh, Stefanos had just defended his Monte Carlo title, is one of the very best players on clay out there. And there was, mo- can you believe, more... Bathroom break drama. This time about... Uh, Stefano's taking a bathroom break in the middle of the set... Having been docked points for it... And then complaining that Carlos's bathroom break was way too long... And it's just... Can we not? I thought we were meant to be over this. I thought
0: rules had been enacted. I thought it was under control. Yes.
1: And the thing is... Uh, the rules were enacted against Stefanos for taking a break in the middle of a set. And then the umpire argued that Carlos's break was still within the rules, because it's measured like by the time you actually reach the bathroom. You don't get docked for like, the walking time. I currently do not have it in me. My bandwidth does not allow for giving, g- giving a damn yeah. about this stuff. Fair enough. You know, it's becoming clear that Carlos Alcaraz has sort of just fallen into the ATP's lap. Um, I, (laughs) this is a really fortunate development for the ATP in the absence and during the decline, right? of, Of the big four, because for years we've been talking about what's next, what's next, you know, is the ATP in trouble? Where are all the charismatic personalities? And I, you know, of course it remains to be seen if Carlos is a star In the same way. Keep in mind,
0: the title of our last episode was Doing Too Much.
1: Right. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is, like, they have spent a lot investing in this next-gen, boosting some, frankly, toxic personalities, Mm -hmm. uh, overlooking some shitty on-court behavior just these past few weeks. Enabling it. And look, this isn't the guy you've been boosting for years, right? This is an 18-year-old who's, like, swooped in. And kind of saved her asses in a, in a way. And so I don't really have any big conclusions to be drawn, but it, it, I'm just saying, like, Carlos, I think, bloomed a little earlier than everybody expected. And he's kind of taken the heat away from the ATP for tolerating some, at best, boring, and at worst, repellent personalities.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's given fans of men's tennis the opportunity... To ignore the incredible stuff that's happening on the WTA tour. I'm happy for the kid. He's doing great things. But can we not pretend like what he's doing is the same as what Iga Świątek is doing? Like we talk about them in the same breath on this show for convenience sake in framing the episode. But to be clear, Iga has won four tournaments in a row. Four big tournaments in a row. 23 matches in a row. (laughs) She's also ranked number one. She's also won a Grand Slam tournament. She stared down the barrel of having to emerge as the new number one when the current number one shock retired and sent women's tennis into disarray momentarily. And she single-handedly has righted
1: the ship. (laughs) Right. I got to say, I'm really, really glad that She's earned this number one ranking because plenty of people could have said, well, she just she backed into it. Right. Because technically she got the number one by default because Ash retired and she has earned so many points in the interim that she has actually earned the number one ranking. Right. And it's not necessary. I know you're you're going to say like it's not required. No, but it's actually it's pretty nice that it's happened. Right.
0: What I was going to say, the thing is the detractors, the haters, the ones who denigrate women's tennis, the ones who still want to keep her at arm's length, who want to not celebrate her achievements, they're going to do that regardless. Yes. It doesn't matter if she wins the next five tournaments, if she wins the next three Grand Slams, <laughs> you know, we saw how long it took for folks to come around to Ash when it comes down to it, it's a, you just don't like her. <laughs> right. That's what and
1: it comes down sometimes to. Sometimes it, it calcifies into tolerance, which for a lot of people, I think they accepted Ash and said, okay, wow, okay, she is actually good. Like, I don't have to love her, but I'll admit that she's good. Right, and, right, know, yes, yes. Right. But I
0: think this is, and no disrespect to these two players, but this is such a clear example of how men and women are treated differently in tennis. I do not think that this is the case with Iga, but folks don't think of her as a beautiful player, that she does not Hmm. physically fit the attributes as somebody to glamorize, to sell the women's sport. But we don't need Carlos Alcaraz, even though he's only 18 years old, and that's kind of creepy, to be like sexually
1: selling men's tennis. But that's a requirement for ego. Well, right, and we don't. It's never stopped the tennis establishment from sexualizing an 18-year-old girl. No, or younger. No, of course, absolutely has not. Emiraticano, Maria Sharapova. The the standards and the requirements are totally different. Well, I mean, the point is like he doesn't have to be hot, you know, and and shouldn't. I'm not saying shouldn't. He should not have to be like he should not be an object of desire in order to be valued uh, but that is the case on the women's tour
0: exactly and folks who want to pretend like that that's not the case and cloak their d- dislike or arms distancing of shweta outside of that like you're not being honest
1: well but that's not that's not everybody right like Correct. that's not all of it Correct. some peeps you can say like oh i'm just not really that into her like i you know i don't respond to her personality which is perfectly valid, like Agreed. and or you know, her game doesn't excite me. Another perfectly valid thing, uh, which is is gonna be true no matter who is is dominating. But I, I see your point. Like, I I'm resisting comparing the two, because like I don't think it's helpful for either Carlos or Iga to be compared to each other. But I do also think Iga should be getting a similar or even more praise and noise and excitement for what she's doing
0: because her achievements are greater
1: right right i think you know part of it is also that carlos can be seen as like a direct uh successor of some of the greats in a way that iga is not of no fault of her own right that she's not accepting a torch from somebody especially not one of the goats right She's accepting a torch from Ash Barty on a micro level. Right, right. And then
0: she's doing things that nobody's done
1: since Serena Williams nine years ago. Yes, but on the men's tour, you know, the story is being written that this is the kid that's going to write the ship after the big three are done, right? After these historic world's best tennis players are done. I'm not saying that's fair. I'm just saying I think that's a story at play here. If Iga were beating Serena for... These titles, the the story would be told differently. Who is Carlos beating for these titles? Um, the goat, Pablo Cariño Busta. <laughs> like,
0: I I just I just don't get it. I mean, we, well, we're just so blindly willing to go into the dark night of runaway narratives with men's tennis and just completely ignore the achievements
1: of women. Yeah, I mean, I'm. Yes, and also, I'm also saying, like, who's better, Rafa on clay or Carlos on clay? And I'm thinking, like, that cannot be a serious question. It re- like, it really cannot be serious. Rafa just beat him with a fractured rib just a few weeks ago. Carlos is very, very good, but he's beating Carreño and Diemenauer to win Barcelona. Rafa was beating Federer and all of the clay greats of his day. It's not, like, it's just not a helpful comparison for Carlos or anyone. Clearly, I'm just a little bit salty about it. <laughs> so, we haven't even mentioned that in Stuttgart, Iga wins uh, title number four on the trot, right? Four in a row? Yes. They're all pretty big titles. Doha, Indian Wells, Miami, and no Stuttgart. She beat Arena Sabalenka six-two-six-two. 2 Sabalenka actually was the runner-up last year. To last year's number one player, Ash Barty in Stuttgart. Arena won Madrid, beating Barty last year. So maybe, maybe the same thing will happen this year. Svantec hasn't lost since Valentine's Day.
0: That's what, a little over two months, mm-hmm. right? She ha- per, per WTA Insider, nobody on the WTA Tour has won as many matches in such a short time as Iga has done since Serena Williams in 2013 between
1: Miami and Rome. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it all it has happened very fast. And you wonder if, you know, like in uh, college basketball, teams need, basically need to have a loss, like going into the tournament, <laughs> right? Undefeated teams frequently lose early in the tournament or they don't win the whole thing. So does Egan need a loss before Roland Garros? Is she, or is she like impervious to that kind of thing? I don't find that conversation interesting
0: oh. or stimulating. Okay,
1: fair enough. <laughs> well, you know we have a limited time anyway. So, anyway, uh, Emma Raducanu <laughs> plays Iga Schiavonek for her first top ten player ever. Yeah. Yeah. Plays her pretty close. Um, closer than most people have lately. Six four, six four. I think it'll be, uh, for Emma's career, it'll be a hugely important match.
0: Maybe I'm out of pocket or totally off base here, but I see some parallel between Emma Raducanu and Jeannie Bouchard. Mm -hmm. You mean like their games. Specifically in how they've had to put their games together to try and prove the haters wrong. And specifically with how professionally they go about doing it. Years ago, when Jeannie was mired in slump after slump after slump, she was still putting in the hard work. Mm -hmm. And I saw, in watching Raducanu play Sviantec, it reminded me of Bouchard playing Serena Williams at the Australian Open a couple years ago. I think it was the second round. And you expected Bouchard to just be blown off the court, but she kind of... The score wasn't cute, Mm. but she did a good job. (laughs) Right, She pushed Serena. There were a lot of good rallies. And you could see, importantly, how this person came to be who she is. Mm. And both players, I think, have been slagged off a little bit because of their off-court achievements specifically, because of how they're viewed as just, you know, endorsement shillers. That they're revered more for their looks than their game. That their games aren't actually that good. I don't think that that's the case with Raducanu. After watching her week after week now, mm-hmm. and I think more so than with Bouchard, I think Raducanu has a better game yeah, yeah. than Bouchard,
1: and her ceiling is much higher.
0: Yes, some of those backhand winners that Emma hit in that match against Frantek, top class, top class. She's got great timing. She's able to redirect the ball. She's got good movement. She takes the ball early. There's a lot to like. Her serving is better than you might imagine. She served really well against Fjantag. My concern for her is that it's going to take a lot of things going very well for her to win consistently at a high level on the WTA Tour. And I don't think that should she not win another Grand Slam that that negates what she's accomplished, that that makes her a disappointment. Not everybody has the supreme tools to win over and over and over again which is why when we see it happening in real time we should appreciate it with Svyantek
1: but watch you say that and then Emma wins like a bunch more <laughs> you know I mean good I'm, for her if she I'm does. agnostic on Emma like I I don't know and I'm also not super invested like I don't you know it I am be... not super invested at all right right but I was I was glad to see that performance against Ego when I kind of expected her to be blown off the court Not because of who she is, but because Ika has been doing that to most players. Mm -hmm. It's also probably
0: a good exercise for Svjantek to go through these kinds of matches. Mm -hmm. Win matches that she's expected to win, but have them be more difficult. To be able to troubleshoot her way through matches. To show up to a semifinal against Samsonova and be tested to the max. Mm -hmm. Having to come through late in a third set before resuming normal programming by beating down a finalist.
1: Right. And not even someone who was playing badly in Sabalenka. Just her game, you know, IGA raised it so high again. All right, that same week, uh, the tour was in Belgrade at Novak's tournament at the Novak Tennis Center. He started each of his wins this week by losing the first set, fighting through three matches in three sets, loses the first set against Rublev in the final and then wins the second in a tie break. He should have lost
0: that first-round match against Laszlo Gere. Like, <laughs> talk about missed opportunities. Mm.
1: Novak said that he has been experiencing uh, some difficulty recovering from an illness that he had a few weeks ago. And uh, everybody's like, what? What illness? But he has mentioned this, that he was, he was sick post-COVID. And that clearly, I mean... You you know you can watch him play suffering a, a bagel in a third set to Rublev, is wild in a final and on home soil on his court right yeah. like the crowd was so indifferent to Rublev's very existence, <laughs> right like uh, clearly Novak's fitness is so far from where he wants it to be, and he said, you know he's just not he's not recovering as quickly as he expected. And of course, this has invited so much speculation and dare I see even schadenfreude from some people. Now, I'm never ever going to celebrate someone's illness. So that's not what's happening here. Mm-hmm. It's well, just, it's kind what of alarming. Is it
0: that people are alluding to?
1: Well, We're beating around the bush oh, I mean, people are saying, oh, this is long COVID. Mm. Like, how would you know? I, You know, I, I get it. Like, I understand why people would say that, but how do you know? And also there's so little that we even know about long COVID to this day. Um, Obviously hope that's not it. He's also, he's also 35 years old. And this is something that we don't talk about a lot with Novak because of his supreme fitness into his thirties. It may be just really difficult to get back into match play after such a long layoff. So there may be a few things going on here.
0: Something interesting that came out of that tournament today was Andre Rublev stating that Barcelona did him dirty last year, essentially, and that's why he didn't go back. Yes. That he basically has a home base in Barcelona, so he was asked, well, how come you play it here instead of Barcelona? And he was like, well, you know, a lot of things happened
1: last year that I did not, I did not like. Uh, yeah, you know, I was going to ask this question before I saw the Rublev quote. Firstly... You know why do why did players choose Belgrade over this historic tournament in Barcelona, which is certainly more prestigious? Was it uh, appearance fee money? Was it the experience? Was it the opportunity to play against maybe not as difficult to draw? Maybe I don't was know. Was it doing, Buddy Nole a favor? Right. And so Rublev gave his answer that he felt he wasn't treated well at Barcelona and didn't really go into detail. But now, of course. Everybody wants to know what that means. And now folks are looking around and like,
0: well, Fabio has a base in Barcelona too. He wasn't there. All these Mm. other players who normally are there went somewhere else. And I really want to know what it is because there was clearly something that happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, going forward, if this Belgrade tournament stays at the same spot in the calendar opposite Barcelona, this could become a problem. (laughs) I mean, at that point, there'll be no problems with giving wild cards to Spanish players. Seriously.
1: All right, so the previous week was Monte Carlo, as the Italians say. Um, Stefano Sissipas defended his title there. It's His his only two Masters 1000 titles are both in Monte Carlo. We heard a lot about this potential Djokovic-Alcaraz quarterfinal at the beginning of this tournament. And that surely did not happen. Because they both lost their first (laughs) match. And this is what happens in tennis. Draws do not come to fruition, more often than not. Djokovic lost to uh, Alejandro Davidovich Fokino, who, for his part, made it all the way to the final. He had a boss, a boss week. Yes, his first ATP final, and doing it at a big tournament like this.
0: If you're looking for somebody to stand on the main tour, on the men's tour, he could
1: be one. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. And Alcaraz lost to Korda in his first match. So we did not get that Djokovic-Alcaraz quarterfinal. But we got, you know, some other things. Dimitrov, like I said earlier, made it to the semifinals in Monte Carlo, beating Rude and Orkac. Davidovich got to the final. Tsitsipas sort of was able to get in full flight again on clay and sort of find his game again.
0: Kudos to Stefanos for winning this tournament. They're not easy to win. Not everybody has those. Not everybody has those. But still, I don't think this has given any relief to the growing concerns about the state of his game and his progress and progression as a tennis player.
1: No, I mean, he is at his best on clay, right? And I think it accentuates the positives and it maybe gives him more time on some of the negatives, like the return, for example. But there is a core problem here. And that core problem is the way that his team behaves, in my opinion. Because as long as attention is on his dad for entire matches, this is not benefiting him at all. We're getting coaching violations constantly. There's drama about bathroom breaks. There's constant chatter from his father from the box. This is bringing so much unwanted attention. I don't think Stefanos likes this. How You know, I don't think it's helpful for him. I can't imagine this is how he wants it to be, this constant drama. And, of and course, he's
0: not going to fire his dad. And of course his fans push back and say, well, he's being targeted unfairly, that other players are not being held to the same standard. We've seen how this played out. We've seen the shot clock and how that was probably targeted toward Nadal more than other players. Why? Because Nadal was one of the players
1: who took the most time to begin with. It's right. just a fact of life. And so the obsession over the bathroom breaks, yeah, it was unfair to Stefanos. And it, it, I'm sure, affected his performance at the U.S. Open. And the just the disproportionate coverage in the media about the bathroom breaks was silly. It was ridiculous. I'll give you that. However, you know, with Stefanos, there has been like nonstop giggery and wiggery. For a long time. There was... Do you remember he couldn't keep his shoes on for years? The shoelace thing. And then there was, I mean, the tantrums with his dad. And so, to me, so much of this goes back to the lack of professionalism among the people who should be supporting him.
0: Right. I will push back against the framing of that because as far as I'm concerned, he's a 23-year-old man... Well, yes. ...who's made over $80 million from tennis alone. Yes. Like, spend less time vlogging and stealing people's quotes for laughs on the internet and professionalize your setup. Take your career seriously or more seriously. You have sole control to nip this in the bud. And I know folks say, well, it's not that easy when you're dealing with your parents, your father. How can you fire your father? What have you? Yes, we've seen how insidious this is in the history of tennis sport. Yeah not just on the WTA tour, here on the men's tour as well, it's not easy. But at a certain point, we can't be having the same conversations over and over and over again and expecting a different result.
1: Yeah. I, I'm trying to be more empathetic than I have been in the past, mm-hmm. to his situation. You definitely are. <laughs> but, well, because I I do agree with his fans that, the situation as it is, is not beneficial to him. But what needs to be said is that it's also not beneficial to his opponents, right? They're also dealing with needless drama and distractions during matches. So, but in being empathetic to a player who's dealing with this dad, who's a little bit out of control, at some point, like, dad's got to extricate himself or something's got to change. We shall move on. From,
0: from, from this bit.
1: <laughs> what else? So there was Fed Cup, there was Billie Jean King Cup that week of Monte Carlo, and I'm so sorry, there's too much to keep track of during Billie Jean King Cup. Love you, Billie Jean.
0: In Istanbul this week, I go, it's now Monday, last week. Oh, Pot- sorry, we missed that. Yeah, Potapova beat Kudermetova in Istanbul for her first
1: WTA title. Two Russians in the final there. What is now three weeks ago, Right. We had the U.S. Clay Court Championships in Houston. Riley Opelka wins his second title of the year, beating another tall guy. Both of Riley's titles were in Texas this year. There aren't that many tournaments in Texas, but he has won both of them so far.
0: I'm not sure that we're very far away from referring to Opelka as one of those other guys as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, let's... Let's take baby steps here. Like we reserve that for the really bad. Uh, uh in Marrakech, Morocco, David Goffin wins his sixth career title beating Molcan. And honestly, I thought it had been ages since Goffin won a title, but it, he won one in 2021 as well. I was surprised that he's only won six. Yes,
0: I was too. In Charleston, Charleston in. Bay, I can't <laughs> believe that we haven't recorded since oh Charleston
1: happened. Charleston, which uh is the longest-running WTA-only tournament in North America, mm-hmm. right? Was previously Hilton Head, has a family circle, a cup. very serious, you know, a very important history in women's tennis. I always want to drop, twice. That, drop that. Never been. I keep trying to get. You to go. I have not been. But this. Speaking of Ben, Ben Chich was the winner. A little wordplay there. Okay, but when you say speaking of Ben, folks are going to think you're talking about Rothenberg. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, what? What did Ben do? What are we talking about here now? <laughs> He he upheld the the quest for truth on Twitter today and and got really just mocked for it endlessly. Guys, media literacy is really important. Like, the jokes are fine. Like, I have no problem with the fake quotes and whatever. But to pretend like you don't understand why a journalist would be concerned about it, that's disingenuous. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay. Did not have the bandwidth for that today. No. And, you know, it would be easier to swallow if more of the jokes were funny. That is true. Anyway, Belinda Benchich beat Anshabur in Charleston. Oh,
0: that's why this is,
1: like, put in the back of my mind. Oh, you chose to ignore it. I guess. You know, watch this final. The crowd was loving it. And the crowd really wanted Ansh to come back. I got the sense that they wanted her more. Maybe that's my bias, speaking. But uh, Belinda... The woman can play.
0: There's no denying that. I don't know how many more times we have to say it on this podcast. (laughs) Like, there's no denying
1: her talent. She's got game. It's just... Uh, Anyway, uh, Anz was the runner-up in Charleston last year as well. So she's defended her runner-up points. I would really like to see her win this title, though. In Bogota... See, this, I was here for this one. Yes. This one was
0: a moment very pleasing to me in (laughs) in this tennis calendar. Tatiana Maria, 34-year-old mother of two, wins her second career title, the first being Mallorca in 2018. And that was probably the inaugural. How did I just pronounce that? Inaugural. Inaugural.
1: I don't know. It was one
0: of the first. I'm pretty sure it was. On grass. A lot of folks didn't know. I didn't know that she was off tour having a second kid giving birth in April 2021. Mm -hmm.
1: And then she started back on tour in July. How? She's played a ton since then. If you look at her calendar since then. She won an
0: ITF in February, coming through qualifying and then winning seven matches total. And now she's won her second career title. Like that is, that is good stuff. Yeah, that is very cool. A few et cetera's we learned per John Wertheim, that the WTA will definitely not play any fall tournaments in China. The only Asian swing tournaments that will happen will be those in Japan and Korea. And that the WTA finals are likely to be held in Europe and disappointingly not in Mexico. That's too bad. That
1: that seemed like a lot of fun. Gail Falkenberg is back. She is 75 years young, and she's playing another ITF, this time in Orlando. She did lose Six Love, Six Love to Bulgarian Dia Eftimova, but Gail is out here. She won three points. That's
0: it? I think so, yeah. Oh. One of them on a drop shot, and one of them on a lob. Well. I mean, she's 75. Come through, Gail. Like, like, there's only so much moving she
1: can do on the court, you know? You know, her movement is. It's not optimal. But she is fun to watch. Like, this is a story that I
0: am always here for. Yes. Like, if you want to do something in life and you have the ability to do it, the opportunity to do it, and it gives you joy, do it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Kim Clijsters, on the other hand, will not be playing. Well, she had the opportunity to do it, but she just didn't want to do it. She tried. and... And then she stopped. The pandemic really screwed up the the comeback. Absolutely. She had injuries. Fitness was an issue. Opportunities were an issue. Mm -hmm. She played at a few big tournaments, put in some good performances against, uh, especially against Alexandrova, I think. Well, there were no wins. No, no, no. But it was like a really, really good set. Do you remember Mm -hmm. that? She had a few good sets. Yes, yes. But Kim's second comeback, this is comeback number two, right? Yes, so this is and I mean, her third iteration. Even, even in her first career, she had some epic comebacks, like in 2005, for example. This one did not get off the ground. She has retired again, officially. Tommy Robredo, 39 years old. A lot of people didn't realize he was still an active player, but he was. And he's officially retired from tennis, had achieved the number five ranking, won 12 titles, his biggest tournament win was at the 2006 Hamburg Masters, which at the time was a very prestigious tournament. Mm -hmm. One of his later career
0: highlight moments was when he had that epic match against Andy Murray, and when he lost, he gave him a double middle finger salute at the net as they both Mm -hmm. collapsed, collapsed at
1: the net. He retires with more than 500 wins which not that many players have that. He's somebody who in his mid to late 30s toiled in, in the lower levels of, of the tour and was, you know, trying his damnness to play challengers and stuff. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of honor in that.
0: At Grass Seasons on Twitter, politely requested that we discuss Serena Williams unfollowing Patrick Moratoglu on Instagram.
1: <laughs> what does this mean for her return? Babes, I don't know. Uh, you, you have know, here
0: noted some of the the people that Serena follows yes, on Instagram. Yes, I
1: would like to go through this. Serena does follow 123 people in total. Is any of them Mariah? Um,
0: I don't, I don't recall. Well, she did attend a Mariah concert one
1: year at the Year End Championships, I think, in Singapore. So we know she's a bit of a fan somehow, right? I mean, she only follows one hundred and twenty-three accounts, so like that doesn't mean she doesn't like you. If you're not, we're talking about
0: the greatest female (laughs) solo artist of all time. Yes,
1: and and the goat in in her respective endeavor. So, goats need to stick together. She does follow Roger Jean Page from Bridgerton, Quavo, Donatella Versace. Why are you flexing on that pronunciation? Well, no, because. Donatella does that all the time, because people always say Versace, and she's like, honey, it's Versace. Mm. Woody Harrelson, strangely enough. Alexandra Zverev, we're going to skip right by that one. Diane Keaton, random. Uh, Luckily, she does still follow Jarmir and Mackie Shillstone. And when you say luckily, because they are part of her typical tennis team. (laughs) To me, the fact that she unfollowed Patrick doesn't really say anything one way or another about her potential return to tennis. Many have resigned themselves to the idea that she has retired, and I think that is a possibility, but I also think it's a possibility that she'll try one one more little push. Mm. So we, I don't I don't know.
0: Like we keep hearing that there's this documentary thing that's happening and that perhaps the original intent was to have this docu series or documentary culminate with her retirement and that perhaps the plan was for any
1: of the many finals that she lost for it to have been one of those <laughs> right. jim courier clocked that camera crew at the 2021 Australian open when she was having a great run and i think that had she won that tournament this would all be over you know that would have been her retirement mm. For me, I think it's more a positive sign than a negative sign for her being on the tennis court again. Yeah, I mean, if she was retired, like, why would uh, why would she feel the need to unfollow Patrick? I mean... Listen, we've all followed like, Patrick. It's I, I too know, much. Right? Like, he's a lot. And to me, it would be more likely that there's some sort of drama between them. Also, can you imagine if,
0: say, for example, she's like, yeah, we'll get back together and work when I'm ready to come back. You know, go do your little cute thing with Simona. And then everything is like... Simona, 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 24-7
1: on all social media, like, it's too much. On another episode, we'll talk about whether we think that partnership's going to last.
0: I have no interest in discussing that. (laughs) Today is also the 17th anniversary of one Rafael Nadal Pereira entering the ATP Top
1: 10. And, spoiler alert, he never left. That's 866 weeks consecutive weeks in the top 10. And what is that? A world record, baby. <laughs> Jimmy Connors is the closest with 788 weeks. Like, think about it. This is 1973 to 1988. That's a long-ass time. Mm. He came close. I think he got
0: down to, what, number 9 at one point? When he was out with injury. Mm. It would have been around, like, 2014-ish, 2015-ish. Um, but... He's still there? I requested that we end this episode with a little bit of a discussion on Willow Pill.
1: Yeah, so I've been rooting for Willow Pill since the very first episode, since she did that incredible performance art of throwing the pasta in the bathtub. That was the first episode? It it was the talent show episode. Okay. I've just absolutely loved Willow's originality. I feel like she's brought something we haven't seen in a while on Drag Race. She, She just felt wholly... Original and Mm -hmm. herself. Um,
0: So many of these queens, given that we're on season 700 of Drag Race, they feel derivative. Even if you like them and enjoy them, you think and feel that you've seen at least some of them before in somebody else. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've seen as
1: complete a package of what Willow Pill presents in herself elsewhere. Yeah, and... So I felt that she should have had more wins through the season. But we've been shown over the past few years that that doesn't matter. That, you know, like the that, statisticians, <laughs> the ones that count the wins and everything. Like, it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't. That Tinkerbell
0: performance? Right. I've never seen anything right. like that before. Like, that, that's what I'm talking about. Like, so much of what we saw this
1: season was original. And that's really what, you know, kind of tipped the scales for her, I think. And... She just, she felt like a very, she felt like a queen for our time. She lives with a chronic illness. She's been very open about how she's essentially had to stare down death and just get on with it. She recently lost her sister to the same disease she's dealing with. And uh, I just love her sort of this philosophy. She's talked about the queerness of the universe and in my interpretation, you know, it feels like absurdity. It's like we look at the universe and laugh because why are we here? Like, you know, she's been close to death. So at this point, all you can do is laugh and remove its power. Like, that's so profound to me, especially now. Mm. I did not have as it's profound like, thoughts Like about You don't this? always have to contend with stuff like that on Drag Race, but... I don't know, she felt so relatable and so real. Right, because she presents it with
0: cutting, not taking herself seriously humor. Yeah, because
1: love. laughter is is political and it's powerful.
0: Right, but also people attempt to be funny and And it's not. funny. <laughs>
1: yeah. Sure, it has to be funny. Yeah. <laughs> we are at the
0: end of this episode. We do not have a title. We will probably argue and fight about it. We've been pretty good recently of coming into episodes and recording with a title already in mind. Mm-hmm.
1: Is it it is a main stressor for me. Yeah.
0: Anyway you, you've already I, argued with me and fought with me once already today. Yeah.
1: And I'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh everyone, thanks for your patience as we sort of got our lives together and sat down to record again. We will try to be better. Yeah. Back to our regularly scheduled programming. My name is Jonathan. You can find
0: me on Twitter at tennis underscore John.
1: And I'm James at Elliot JMR.
0: Two L's, two T's. This is The Body Serve. In case y'all forgot, find us everywhere on www.linktree.com slash The Body Serve. Mm -hmm. Is that your NPR voice? I don't know. That was pretty bad.
1: Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.